we, we during the '90s we were never in line with what was going on locally. You know, it's, you know, you don't you'd have to be living under a rock to find know what was going on in Seattle locally in the '90s. You know, it was, and we were friends with all the guys. I mean, I, we were, we used to hang out at Madison Park with you know McCready and the guys from Pearl Jam, and yeah. the guys from Screaming Trees and and you know Mud Honey and all those guys. It was a you know because back in the '90s, Seattle was like a brotherhood. Everyone supported everyone. Yeah, yeah. Welcome to the Better Each Day podcast radio show with Bruce Hilliard. Today and every day, reaching out for innovative ideas in every way. Yeah, Today's show is yeah. brought to you by your future. It comes with a lifetime guarantee. Ooh, make a better stay now, baby. Better every way. Really early on in life, someone told me, it was, I was mowing lawns. I, we were piss poor broke when I was a kid. And like my mom made all our food. We never had soda. We never went out to eat. We never, it was like, you know, homemade bread and homemade, and homemade noodles, homemade fucking everything. <laughs> and uh, so I was, when I, when I was started playing hoops, I, uh, and if I wanted to get shoes, I had, I had to buy myself. So I was out mowing lawns when I was like 13, 12 years old. And I remember one of my clients sat me down and he said, hey, you know, like, what do you want to be when you grow up? And I'm like, fucking 13, man. <laughs> Know what I want to be when I got, give me a chance to be a kid. Anyway, he was feeling all, you know, like he was a, you know, a mentor to me or whatever. And he goes, you know, whatever you do, you should learn, learn a trade because no matter what you do, if something happens, you can always fall back on a trade. Yeah. And that stuck with me. And I was like, that's pretty sound advice. So, um, I always worked on houses and then, you know, just recently when I, so this whole, the orange King, we actually were a good band. We made a couple of records. Um, we, we and during the '90s, we were never in line with what was going on locally. You know, it's, you know, you don't you'd have to be living under a rock to find know what was going on in Seattle locally in the '90s. You know, it was, and we were friends with all the guys. I mean, I, we were, we used to hang out at Madison Park with you know McCready and the guys from Pearl Jam, and yeah. the guys from Screaming Trees and and you know Mud Honey and all those guys. It was a you know because back in the '90s, Seattle was like a brotherhood. Everyone supported everyone. It wasn't this fucking high school clique that it is now, and and um, so we did some good records, but they were always different. Like there was like, they were way more like Beatlesy, like the end of the Beatles, like the Let It Be, Abbey Road. That's, that's the kind of stuff we were doing, mm. really melodic. And people were like, wow, really good songs. It just don't really work in Seattle. And we went on tour a couple of times and we had a manager. And when the band broke up, I was still under contract. And the manager called me and goes, hey, man, you should come down and do this songwriting workshop with Jim Messina. And I was like, who? Ooh. I didn't know who Jim Messina was. Oh, really? About songwriting. Man. He is way under there's a reason Kenny Loggins was so good and it's because Jimmy Messina was pulling the strings I mean I'm sure Kenny Loggins had some talent but Jimmy Messina is a genius and so no I mean because we had records and stuff but my we never well, had those records you're a little young Jim Messina he was a producer and he was in Poco and then and of course Loggins and Messina and then he kind of faded away but he did Buffalo Springfield too you know yeah but I didn't know any of those. And of course, looking back now, you look at their record covers, especially the Log of the Messina, you're like, oh my God, could these record covers be any more ridiculous? <laughs> I mean, there's, I mean, there's other adjectives I could use, but apparently they're not very PC anymore, so I can't use them. Um, <laughs> I'll let you fill in the blank. Um, anyway. Hey, it's my show. You can say anything you want. <laughs> just make sure you edit it out so I don't <laughs> I have get to just slam back. I have to check the box off that says explicit language. <laughs> I know, right? Yeah. I don't want to get John Gruden. Um, now that's a I know. What's up with that dude? God, <laughs> he's an idiot. Anyway, so I went. 
I went down and I walked into this place. I had my really long hair and I walked in, I threw up my band down and I walk into this in Montecito and I walk into this place. And everyone's setting up and everyone's running around. Everyone worshiped the ground that guy walked on. Right. Yeah. So I walk in and I look around and I go, Hey, which one of these guys is Jimmy? He's, of course, he's fucking standing right in front of me. <laughs> I don't even know. And everyone, I mean, it was like total needle off the record moment, right? So everyone kind of looks at me like, and he comes up and he goes, um, I'm Jimmy, who are you? I'm like, oh, I'm Ian Jones. I'm from Seattle. My manager told me I should come down and take the song at workshop. And I kind of look around and I look at him. And I'm like, hey, where can I have a smoke? Because I smoked at the time. And everyone was like, no one else smoked oh. except Jimmy. Oh, really? And he goes, and he kind of looks at me and he kind of gets this half shit eating grin on his face. He goes, here, come with me. So we went outside and he was kind of sizing me up like, who is this guy who doesn't even know who I am? You might have thought it was kind of cool. cool because, yeah. Well, everyone else wanted to kiss his ass. Yeah, exactly. And they did. Oh, my God. And I was just like, and then like we did these songs and like one of the songs that I really liked called Somewhere Down in California, which I had just written. Somewhere down. Well, you someday will, like many have done before you. Well, eventually, find if you honestly try. Well, it's only fair to warn you. Better keep your head up, or the only way to go is down. He was like, No, I don't like that song. And I was kind of like, who the fuck are you? I'm like, give it a chance. He's like, no. But he really liked some of my other songs. And so, and it was funny because I had this total attitude like I was a rock star, which was hilarious because I wasn't at all. Um, I think I was like, oh, fuck, I don't know, I was like 25, right? 25, 26 years old. And I thought I knew it all, right? So, um, but I go down there and I, so I do these things and like we're telling stories and we're, and then we ended up doing a, 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 a performance thing, and he picked a couple of the performers in the whole group to play a song. Well, I got picked to play two. Ooh. And that really kind of rubbed people the wrong way. They're like, who is this guy that comes out of nowhere and like, gets to play two songs with Jimmy? And so he played with me, and then we became friends. Wow. We both hunt. We both fish. And I've always treated people, no matter where. I mean, we did a show one time. With the the dirt, I don't know if you know who the Dirty Knobs are, but it's essentially it's Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers without Tom Petty. Oh, and we did a, we did a show and we spent a whole weekend with like Mike Campbell and Ronnie Blair and Steve Ferroni. Yeah, and I walk off stage and I'm carrying my Rickenbacker 12 string and Mike Campbell's there. And he's like, "Hey, nice guitar," and I'm like, "If it would stay in tune." And there's like his guitar text it hits him standing next and goes, "See, I told you." And I'm like standing there with Mike Campbell who is my fucking idol. I, he's my favorite guitar player in the world. Yeah, he's really cool. I love what he does. I'm just looking at him and I'm like, this dude puts his pants on one leg at a time. If I cut him, he's going to bleed red. We're all, I mean, I look at, I'm ne I've never been starstruck by anyone. I'm just like, hey, they're just a dude. They just have, that's their job. They're really good at it. Yeah. You know? So I treated Jimmy the same way. And so we became friends and I learned a lot about songwriting from him. He is way under there's a reason Kenny Loggins was so good and it's because Jimmy Messina was pulling the strings I mean I'm sure Kenny Loggins had some talent but Jimmy Messina is a genius he's also a shrewd businessman you know he owns half of Santa Barbara so he's he's done all right with his money and um he's still out playing he's still out touring when he comes through town I try to catch him the last time he was here we they played at the parent no they played at the, the triple door and um 
I went down and hung out with him and my buddy John Lou, he was guitar teching and so I, you know, it's, it's, I stay in touch with all those guys. And then that's how I met Jesse was through John Mui. And when I was down playing in Santa Barbara, we would play together. And then now Jesse's my producer and he's been doing these records with me. So it's all kind of, it all kind of ties. I'm really glad I moved to Santa Barbara because I, otherwise I wouldn't be doing what I'm doing. I pulled out of Northville and headed down With my head up to keep from crying Watch the sunset without a sound Then I hit that road I was rolling Then I crossed that border California bound and the night was falling down, coming on fast Thank God Almighty I'm free at last And I'm out on the road and I'm rolling I'm rolling Yeah, I'm rolling I'm on uncertain ground With my guard up to keep from falling But I didn't seem to find any peace around And so I hit that road and I'm still Where do you currently live? I live in Ballard. Oh, okay. I, I wanted to assume that, and then now, yeah, you're talking Californian back and forth. I kind of lost you. You're, you know, where's Waldo well, we right now? we moved back. We, we decided, so me and my girlfriend um, at the time, we got married when we were living. We lived in Santa Barbara, and then we moved to L.A. I'm like, hey, why not just jump right into the fire, which was the biggest waste of money and time I've ever done. Uh-huh. Um well, if the first thing I learned is if you want to do anything musically in, in, in L.A., the first thing you have to do is get out of L.A. <laughs> and I just spent all my money, rent stakes, you know. So we ended up – I worked in, in L.A. for three years to save money so we could get the hell out of there. 
Um, and I, but again, I learned a lot. I, I made a, I mean, I, I don't know, for 30 years I've been doing this, and for 30 years I've been falling on my face, really, at the end of the day. I've been making mistakes, do, but, but doing things my own way, doing things the way I think I should do them. And, and yeah, most of the time I'm totally wrong, but I've had fun. And that's really what it's about at the end of the day. I mean, none of, no one's going to, who's going to be a rich rock star? I mean, there's like one millionth of 1% of people that maybe play music can squeeze out a living. You know, I mean, that's, the numbers are so stacked against us that it's ridiculous. Um, and we wanted to get married, and so we got married, and then we wanted to have kids. And I said, we can't have kids in L.A. That's just not cool. So we moved back up here, and I figured I would take a couple of years off and then get right back into it. And my three years off turned into 13 off because my dad's wife got sick, and she died. Then I took care of my dad, and he got sick, and then he died. And I had to take care of his estate, which was a total shit show. And by the time I came out of it, I had tried to be a hobbyist musician and I, I couldn't, I it was, I was miserable. Um, which is what the last, one of those interviews I did, I was talking about that and that's where they took it out of context and I sounded like an asshole. <laughs> so I won't go, go down that road again, but, um, I just, Ian, I want to tell you, I want to tell you right now, before you go any further, I'm going to edit your interview. So you sound like an asshole. So you, go ahead. <laughs> awesome. <Please. laughs> I'm totally sure. Yeah, it's going to be Ian Jones and his new record, Evergreen, but what a dick. No. Um, As sung by Bruce Hilliard. And he... <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Um, but we, I, I, I started, I, my sister is in radio down in Marin. She's a, runs a radio station, a small uh, one. And, uh, and she was going to um, Nashville every year for the AMA, the Americana Music Awards. And she was on the, these panels and she said, you know, if you're going to get back into music, because I was starting to write stuff that wasn't as, you know, so-and-so Beatles-y or whatever. It was more, because my dad was the country music guy. And I, I you know, I, I cannot sing rock and roll. I mean, I'm not Chris Cornell. I'm not Ed Vedder. I don't have that thing that some guys have. But I can sing this Americana country as sort of James taylor stuff all day long. And that's great because you can sing that kind of music. I mean, look at William Nelson. He's a He's like 145 years old. Yeah, still out playing, you know. Yeah, yeah. He's he's you know, and and so you can play this kind of music forever. And I was like, okay, well, you know, this is I've been running from this my whole life. Why not embrace it? So she said, come to Nashville. So I went to Nashville one year, and but she had told me she said, don't tell anyone that you play. Just come and pay attention and listen, try to learn. So I went, and I went for like five years in a row. And I had the best time, and I met all these people, and no one knew that I played. I became friends with Robin Hitchcock, for Christ's sake, you know, because of Nashville. And because um, you're always in the same place. There's all these different shows, and there's all these things, and everyone's running around with a lanyard around their neck. And you keep running into people, and finally, like, hey, what's your name? And like, hey, you're, like, Aren't you Robin Hitchcock? I said, yeah, I love your stuff. Man. You know, what's your name? I'm Ian. I'm from Seattle. Oh, Seattle. I spent a lot of time in Seattle. I'm friends with Peter Buck. I'm like, small world, you know? So... Cool. But one of the things I learned in Nashville is that if you're going to, and of course the music industry totally changed in that 13 years that I took off, it couldn't have changed more. You know, record labels were. The entire industry changed. Yeah. Yeah. Industry changed. All of a sudden, you know, enter Spotify, Instagram, Facebook, 
it was like, oh, my God. And everyone's like, oh, and you have to have this and you have to have that. I'm like, I don't even know what that is. Like, I'm too fucking old to know this stuff. I, this is a, it seems like it's a, it's a kid's game now. I do the same thing every day, too. It's like, what the hell happened here, you know? There's nobody iconic because they can't be made iconic. Maybe three people in the world right now. But it seemed like about the time uh, maybe Nirvana fell apart back in those days when there were record labels. It died. Yeah, I mean, I, people, people say that there's still developmental deals, but I don't think so. I got offered a developmental deal by... Yeah, can you explain what that is? What I took away from it was the developmental deal is like, and this is this is what he and he explained to me how Taylor Swift got made it. So a developmental deal is they come along and they say, "Hey, we like your stuff. How much money are you willing to invest in yourself?" And you're like, "And I was like, what?" He goes, "Look, because we'll match it. So if you got twenty grand, we'll match twenty grand. So now you got forty grand, and we'll use our machine to move you forward." And I was like, okay. And I, of course, I, I, after going through a bunch of stuff, I told the guy to go fly a kite. But, um, and, I'm, and I'm glad I did. But he, he told me the story. He goes, you know, what they did is they had, it was like the, it was the YouTube things, and they had seen Taylor Swift came, kind of came along. So they went to her and they said, hey, we think you have promise, and you're like this little pop kind of country girl, and we want to offer you a developmental deal. How much money are you willing to invest? And her dad says, how about like 4 or $5 million? And they were like, what? He goes, yeah, I'll invest $4 million in my daughter. And you're going to match it, right? So now it's eight million. What? Well, with eight million dollars, anyone can become a yeah. Pop I was going to say if, if that was invested properly, yeah, you could play a stick, right? And that's what happened. And she wrote these songs about oh, and this boyfriend, and the, he, I hate him, and then this other guy, and fuck him, and he ruined my life, and I'm going to write songs about him. And everyone was like, ooh, there's a niche. And she just got prettier and prettier, and she has a good voice. Yeah. And she's tall. All the ingredients, for, and they were like, okay, let's groom her in the start, and boom, there you go. Now she's one of the biggest stars in the world. It's, it's sort of an unlikely story. It's kind of like the Beebs. They have these developmental deals, and someone tried to tell me that, that labels still offer deals, record deals to people, and I'm like, really? Like, first of all, are there record labels anymore? I mean, it's like, they're, it seems to me like the record labels, the big ones, are buying the right to people's music. Like, yeah. who is it? Tina Turner just sold her rights, you know? And it's like, you know, who was it? Pearl Jam sold their rights, but they did it on the down low. They didn't, mm. it wasn't in the news. I just found out about that wow. from a friend of mine who knows the guys in the band. But there's no, they can still go out and they can make money touring because that's the only way where, that's the only place money is. And Pearl Jam's not getting played on the radio. Right. So they're just they selling sell their records. Publishing rights, correct? And then they can tour. Yeah, publishing, store. yeah. Yeah, and sell t-shirts. They, they can tour and they, they, make, they make all the money on merch and, and, yeah. and, and, and and the reason concerts are so expensive now is because all the loopholes with the publishing and all that stuff, I mean, there is no, like on radio, there is no royalties for radio anymore because there's loopholes. Well, as long as, you're, as long as you're streaming your radio show online, you don't have to pay royalties. So everyone's streaming now. Even if no one's listening, they're streaming so they don't have to pay royalties. Yeah. So there's zero mechanical royalties for radio anymore. Zero. Well, so no one's getting paid that way. Well, how are you going to make money? We'll sell records. No one sells records anymore because everyone goes on Spotify and listens. And what, you get point zero zero three seven cents every time someone listens to your song? Yeah, so if your record goes 30 times platinum, you might make enough money. Make five grand. <laughs> yeah, no, that was, that was um, in, in Nashville, I was talking with um, Roseanne Cash and her husband. And oh, um, yeah. she, w she was talking about how she had like 17 million streams and she made like five grand. 
She was oh, like, really? something's wrong with me. And I was like, Jesus, that, and I was like, man, this is a, <laughs> this is a, why am I getting into this? <laughs> this seems like a money pit, but we do it because we love it. That's just it. I, they look at me like I'm stupid when I tell them, oh yeah, I was, and I did this. And then some people just say it's a complete waste of time. Others will say, uh, what are you doing now? Or there's always speculation. And, but I always say the same thing. God, it was the most fun I ever had in my life. You know, if I'm on my deathbed, I, I won't regret having done that for a second. Well, one of the things, and so one of the things I learned through like with Roseanne, oops, with, sorry, with Roseanne Cash and everyone was that if you're going to do this, one of the things you have to do is you have to have a revenue stream. So what I did I decided I was going to need to take my construction company up to the next level. So what I did is I, I did just that. And it was a lot of work. And over the last seven or eight years, I've worked this construction company up to where I don't even advertise anymore. I've stopped advertising. I used to have signs that I put out in front of my jobs. I don't anymore. Cause then you end up talking to people all day long. And I'm like, I'm trying to work here and oh, you're yeah. asking me questions about what I, you know, that's so I a good just, problem to have, though. Well, I'm I'm looking, and here, well, here's the problem: is that now I'm working on a job right now. It's a remodel of a house. It's pushing four hundred thousand dollars, and I'm really not. I'm more of a conductor. I'm juggling over here. I'm like a circus act, and I've got all these subcontractors that I'm managing to come in and do all their stuff. And I'm vacuuming, and I'm like a babysitter. I'm a cleanup crew, and then I get checks, and these checks. Over the last year, what I've, what I've, over the last couple of years, is what I've been able to do is I've been able to make good records, which I think is still first and foremost, because I don't care what publicist you have, or I don't care what radio promotion person you have, or I don't care how many, how many pictures you post on Instagram. If your record sucks, your record sucks. But if you've got a great record, at least you have a shot. If you can get someone to listen to it, all it takes is the right person to. All you have to do is get in front of the right person. That's one of the things Jim Messina said. He said, you just got to be in the right place at the right time. That's all, all it takes. He goes, but the most important thing is you got to make sure you're ready to never be in the right place at the right time. And that was the best advice I ever got musically. If you're doing it to get rich and famous, you're going to be really bitter and jaded. Yeah. But if you do it because you love it, then it doesn't matter. And if you end up getting in the right place at the right time and you end up getting tons of money, well, Hooray! Your kids can have nice shoes. I mean, I don't know, but <laughs> you know, but be prepared to never be discovered. You want to introduce Evergreens? What is the song about? Um, so the song Evergreens was it was born in a fishing boat out in the mouth of the Puyallup River in the in the in the Sound down in Tacoma. My my best friend uh, that I I grew up with, um, Dave Bickford, who has also co-authored a couple of songs with me. Um, he was, I was living in Santa Barbara and one of the things that sucked about moving was that I didn't have a fishing buddy or a hunting buddy. And so he would always call me with updates. And so he was calling me and it was like the fifth time he had called me that, that um, week with another story about another 25 pound salmon that he had caught. And I was actually at lunch at Red Robin in Santa Barbara watching fishing on ESPN or some sports channel watching these guys catch salmon up in Alaska when my phone rings and it's Dave again going, Oh dude, I just got another 27 pounder. And I was like, I was like, fuck this. So I, I go, I'll, I'll call you back. So I hung up, called my boss and I said, I'm going to need a couple of days off. 
And he goes, yeah, no problem. So, and then I called the airline and I booked a plane, like the flight, like the next day. And then I called Dave back and I said, hey, pick me up at the airport. I'm coming up and fishing with you for like four days. And he was like, sweet, you know? So he picked, I, then I went back and had to tell my girlfriend at the time, by the way, I'm leaving. Um, and I, I flew in and he, he had his boat uh, moored at this uh, marina. And uh, he, we went from the airport straight to the marina, got in the boat. We fished that night, went back to his house, fished in the morning. And then we took, went home, took a nap, had lunch, came back, fished at night. We fished every, basically every waking hour for four days and didn't catch a thing. Oh, Jesus. <laughs> right. But one of the days we were sitting there and um, so the mouth of the Puyallup River, you can fish out near Point Defiance. It's called the clay banks, but you can't fish by the mouth, by the, all the mills and stuff till August 1st because the fish, the fish, the salmon like spool, they don't go up the river until the first rain. And when the first rain comes and all that water washes out of the river, that's like the sign and all the fish motivate up the river, right? Hmm. So they're milling around in the sound, eating and getting fat so they can go swim up the river. So they open it up in August. And we were out there sitting in this boat. And when, I don't know if you ever have done much fishing or hunting, but teeny bit. When you have a when you have a buddy that you fish or hunt with, you go and you you spend and it's your it's your favorite time of your life. But you don't you don't say you don't talk. You just sit there. But it's still super enjoyable. People that don't do that don't understand don't understand it. I think we're weird. Anyway, um, <laughs> and then we're sitting there, it'll be all quiet, and all of a sudden, one of I don't know who said it first, but someone was like, um, "9 a.m." Then another minute goes by and the other one goes, sure, it'll feel like August. <laughs> and then we're sitting there and then Dave looks at me and goes, dude, if that's not the first line of thought. I know. And I thought about it. And I was like, fuck, you're right. Totally right. So it like it stuck in my head, right? So then um, I went home, dejected because I hadn't caught anything. And I was sitting in my studio, my studio, my garage in Santa Barbara. That's a studio. And I was playing. Yeah. <laughs> and I was playing. I was playing. And... um and one of my friends, uh, his name is Pat Milliken. He's no, he's no longer with us. He passed away. Um, he was a prodigy guitar player. And at the time he had been doing these things in like dad, dad, he, he was a, a big, he was friends with and a big fan of Pierre Ben Susan, who's a, a fantastic finger style classical guitar player from, um, I think he's from Argentina or something like that. Anyway, or well, he's French. He's French. Um, and, uh, but he was, Pat was in dad, he was doing all this stuff in dadgad and he'd been bugging me. He's like, dude, you got to play in dadgad, write a song in dadgad. So I had the guitar tuned to dadgad and I was, I finally figured out this cool little progression. Yeah. That's just a D tuning. And I was messing around yeah. uh, and I, and I, and all of a sudden I, I just sang, I said, I sang at 9am, sure don't feel like August. And it fit perfect. <laughs> and within 15 minutes, the song was done. Oh, what are those? Yeah. That's cool. And and it was, and really what it was is like, here I am, I'm sitting in Santa Barbara, right? And it's paradise. It's beautiful, beautiful people, beautiful food, great art. Everything was great. My life was great. I didn't have any friends. Um... All my friends were up here. And you take it for granted when you live here, you take like the mountains and the water for granted. But when you move somewhere else and you can't see Marinier and you can't see the Cascades and the Olympics and you can't see the lakes and you can't see the sound, you start to miss it. Yep. Especially if you, if you hang out in those areas. I mean, I hung out on the water and I hung out in the mountains all the time. Yep, same. And I missed my friends and I missed my home. Even though I had taken a chance and moved to a new place that was exciting and everything was going great. And that's what that song's about. 
Envious of anyone, but I'm, I've got to say, if I would have done it right, I would, I would have done what you're doing almost to the T. I think. 
Well, and I'm 51, and I feel like I'm just getting started. Yeah, yeah. And I think, and I think that's okay. It's more than okay. It's the only way to go. I think. Why hang it up? Make a better stay in Listening to the Better Each Day Podcast Radio Show with Bruce Hilliard. We'll be back with a new horizon, but until then, honor the future. It comes with a lifetime guarantee. And we're all just trying to make the next day a bit better.